for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Colin Marshall, coming to you from the campus of the University of Southern California, sitting down today with Richard Rayner, author of novels like Los Angeles Without a Map, The Elephant, Murder Room, The Cloud Sketcher, and The Devil's Wind, author of works of nonfiction like A Bright and Guilty Place, The Blue Suit, Drake's Fortune, and The Associates, and he also teaches in the Master's Professional Writing Program right here. Richard, you said you lived through three or four Los Angeleses when we talked before rolling. What, what are the qualities of those three or four Los Angeleses? Well, I think there are different qualities in the city and which mirror or are distorted by the different qualities that I brought to the city at the time of those different periods. I first came here as a visitor just around the time of the LA Olympics in 1984 and uh, Tom Bradley was the mayor and LA seemed like such the basin had yet to kind of fill up Um, it was such an exuberant place of possibility and coming as I did from having been educated in the north of England, then at Cambridge, then worked in London, I, my socks were just kind of blown off by the sense of kind of up for itness that LA had at that time. And um, so my response to the place was very innocent and I looked at it in a kind of pop-eyed way. Um, and because I didn't drive at the time and because I don't still drive, um, or I still don't drive, I should say, um, I did and still do travel around the city on public transport and I always have a notebook with me. And I remember in 84, 85, on one of my very early visits, I was on the bus with my then girlfriend and um, I was looking out and I said, oh, that palm tree's got a hairstyle like Rod Stewart. And she laughed. I saw then that there was the kind of beginning of a very obvious way of writing about L.A., which was to observe things in the Martian picture-postcard, Craig Rain poetry kind of way, as if they'd never kind of been seen before. Uh, which, of course, by me, they never had been seen before. Um, that book, L.A. Without a Map, really comes out of that very fresh eye that I brought to the city, that I had no other way of looking at the city than in that way because I was so new to it. Um, and then I realised, of course, that this was sort of, you know, the classic way, a classic mode of travel writing Um, in the case of that book and my first experience it was all kind of similarly bound up with this love affair I was having at the time with um, this girl who really was a playboy bunny, it was kind of crazy (laughs) and um, so that was my first beat in LA really and it was about the city's moment for kind of expansion and possibility seemed almost limitless and uh, I later realized that kind of urbanologists and sociologists were very much looking at LA in the same way at that time it seemed like the city of the future it seemed like the American city that was looking towards the east it seemed like it was on the cusp of becoming the world city that it really has become now um So that was the first phase, Um, and I came to live here then, having published that book and written my second book, um, I came to live here with my now wife in 1991, and very soon after that, the LA riots happened, and the Rodney King riots, and um, I had done a lot of work for Granta, my friend and editor of and mentor to some extent, Bill Buford, uh, who's the, uh, the guy who'd kind of created Granter in its modern incarnation, called me up and got me to do reporting on the riots. And um, as they were going on, and I said, Bill, you want me to get myself killed? And he said, no, but injured would be good. And uh, so I got out there on the streets and 
an African-American friend of my wife's drove us around. And uh, I saw then a very, my second L.A., which was the L.A., which is divided up into neighborhoods and not only divided up into neighborhoods, but seems to sort of behave according to some kind of um, geographical apartheid. And there were these vast areas of the city that I'd never been to before that I then went into, and I, South Central and um, Koreatown was the first time I went there. As the riots kind of spread up from Normandy and Vermont and actually reached our doorstep of where we were then living in Hollywood, I saw this place that was kind of very riven and um, unhappy and indeed not so in love with the dream of its own possibilities as I had imagined um, L.A. to be. And I think that the riots represented um, a big moment in the city's history, obviously, and they, for me, they represented a large moment in my kind of the filtering of my own thought about the city and also just the way I felt about the city. And um, I suppose that that was all then reinforced by, as a result of doing that piece for Granta, um, I got invited by the New York Times to do reporting about the LA cops. Um, and at that time, the LAPD had brought in from... I want to say from Washington, but it might have been from Baltimore, um, Willie Williams to be the police chief, who was an African-American guy. The post-Darrell Gates guy, the first African-American um, head of the LAPD. And then the kind of question that the New York Times asked was, is the LAPD capable of being reformed, even by a black chief? And in a way, that, that question was also, is... Los Angeles capable of ridding itself of these um, social and financial schisms that were at that moment in time so apparent and um, you know the answer to that question in my piece was well no I don't think that Willie Williams can make a difference and indeed Willie Williams didn't make much of a difference um, but during the course of that I got to spend six months riding around in the back of police cars and um, moving from Venice, which was all sort of less clean than it is now, um, but in terms of crime, um, but nonetheless was nothing like Rampart, where we saw um, a murder happen within 15 minutes of us kind of landing in the precinct, and nothing like South Central, where, in essence, the, even the LAPD were in a very, very defensive mode. So my sense of, of what LA was, you know, darkened, and um, this wasn't just me, it was also a realization that there were sort of, there were flaws in the city that, that weren't going to be fixed by any amount of, of optimism. So I guess that was kind of phase two for me. Um, phase three began when uh, my own children were born in the kind of late 90s. And I think we saw just an, an America that was kind of much more on the defensive when you get 9-11 happening, which I remember vividly, really through the way our young kids then perceived it. I think L.A. during the Bush years was its own organism because California seemed so separate from the rest of, of the country. And we saw growing here, as in Miami, a kind of um, a much larger Latino middle class... Um, a much wider um, immigrant population from the Far East and also from kind of Central Europe 
So I watched the, the race mix up of the city change a lot during that time. And um, I guess now I feel like I'm in a, another moment of the city's evolution, which I haven't quite identified to myself yet or what my attitude towards it is. It is Notebook on Cities and Culture. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down here at the University of Southern California with Richard Rayner, who teaches here in the Masters of Professional Writing program, but also has written such novels as Los Angeles Without a Map, The Elephant Murder Room, The Cloud Sketcher, and The Devil's Wind, and such works of nonfiction as The Blue Suit, The Associates, A Bright and Guilty Place, and Drake's Fortune. Now, you mentioned, talking about the, the eras of Los Angeles you've been in, not driving in them and i don't have a car here either and it seems like i'm only regarded as slightly eccentric for not having a car here going by los angeles without a map or even more so the movie made out of it it you were once thought of as a freak to to not have a driver's license yeah i think that that's um you run into back then the only people who um I ever met who didn't drive were recidivist Englishmen like myself, <laughs> like Julian Temple, the film director, made a point of never driving here. And um, I guess I have, in a way... I mean, the, when I first came here, um, there were still empty lots on Wilshire Boulevard between Westwood and Santa Monica. So... The city had not yet filled up. A seminal book in my early thinking about L.A., a seminal book about L.A. period, um, was Rainer Banham's Los Angeles Architecture of Four Ecologies. And then the great documentary, which you can just watch on YouTube now, that Banham made, um, this tweedy English bearded intellectual nutcase who was absolutely kind of... A, enchanted by L.A. and saw L.A. as being, for him it represented, for me it, in my early experiences, represented this kind of psychic freedom. And for him the same, but the metaphor for him was the freeways, the automobile, the fact that you could kind of fly here and there. And for a long time that was so much what L.A. is, you know, the joke in Clueless the grumpy father, um, L.A., anywhere to anywhere in 20 minutes. That was the sort of Rainer Banham dream of what the freeways could do. But then just as the 90s go into the 2000s, go into the 2010s, the basin fills up, um, traffic is impossible. We notice the, the reverse... L.A., in its kind of creation of itself, is a city that flung itself outward from downtown. And now we've watched the reverse of that, that L.A. has gone back inward as the basin got filled up. And so downtown has been spectacularly revived. All the neighborhoods around downtown have been spectacularly revived. It's a place you never would have had a reason to go in the early 1980s, I would imagine. Right. And... Um, that's absolutely true. And then in a very different place, I mean, much, much more, there are still those demarca demarcated areas in downtown where you really notice you're crossing into another neighborhood. Um, but I, you know, my book, Bright and Guilty Place, which is uh, a nonfiction history with events in L.A. in the late 20s and early 30s, and um, if you go up to the top of Angel's Flight... Um, where MoMA is, where the Coburn School of Music is, and just kind of look down over downtown Los Angeles, you notice that so many of the buildings are 1920s buildings. Art Deco, the kind of New York urban style of that period, and which was then built during the boom years in the 20s in L.A., and then because the city fled downtown so quickly through the 30s and 40s with the development of the, the car culture, um, that there was no need to knock all of those buildings down. So they fell into disrepair, they fell into disuse, but they didn't actually get knocked down. So there's this sort of irony that 
that a lot of that stuff downtown which is now being kind of restored and revived as the city moved back inwards again are in fact these 20s buildings that were part of the kind of core creation of Los Angeles when the city really identified itself which I think it did between 1920 and 1930 basically and then kind of crystallizes during the depression so yeah I mean I think kind of going back to 84 when I was here it was weird not to drive it really was and um, because a lot of the city was still quite empty and you must have gotten that question I get all the time today then how did you get here as a not 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 a joke actually wondering how it could have how you could have possibly have gotten here flatly wondering right no that my one of my I think I had this moment in LA with Anna Matt put into um, one of the characters' lines, but uh, one of the characters' mouths. But um, I was friendly with this family, and uh, the father of the family was a, a lawyer in Warren Christopher's firm downtown. And uh, I was talking to one of the daughters, and she said, Well, how do you get around? And I said, Well, I take the bus. And she looked at me and said, Not in any sense of irony, but where do they go? Right. <laughs> where, I mean, how do you frame the response to the question, where do they go? I, it's wherever I turn up, I guess. Right. I mean, they go, they go everywhere. The thing is, they go more efficiently everywhere now than they did. And the public transport here has obviously gotten so much better. Right. The whole train system has appeared from being completely non-existent in 1984 until now, but I, I assume that h hopes were higher for it to be built faster when you showed up. Like, any, any moment now we'll have a, we'll have a full subway. You know, here we are, 30 right. years later. Well, what's interesting now is that sort of, yes, what you say is true, that it, it seemed in 84 and up until even the mid-90s, like it was a ridiculous pipe dream. Oh, it'll never happen. Um, but then there was the realization that, well, the city is just going to cease to function <laughs> unless it does happen. And now you see that if you... Um, I ride the Expo line almost every day from USC, which in its position of power within the city um, kindly arranged itself to have not one, not two, but three Expo stops. <laughs> so... I ride here from Culver City every day, and you see this, what the race to extend the expo from Culver City to Santa Monica, those bridges are just growing. Yeah, there's like a new, a new bridge crossing over a street to be connected to the line every time I go by there. Right. It's phenomenal, and they realize, well, actually, this is, it is going to be completely city transformative once you can... Um, get from Santa Monica to Union Station on a train that will take you half an hour. It's sort of amazing. I, w I want to get clear on th that impulse you were talking about in the city, the idea that, and I'm not, it's not just about the subway, but that impulse, that will never happen. It seemed like for a long time there, even in optimistic times in Los Angeles, the idea that something might fundamentally change in Los Angeles, the, the res response is automatically, that's impossible. You know, this is a city that has been, as you well know, the most optimistic and forward-thinking in America at times, but also sometimes at the same time, uh, the, I don't want to say pessimistic, but just like, no, that won't work. That's not going to happen. Just just endure it. Grit your teeth. Nothing's going to change here ever. What, what's going on there? I'm not a Mike Davis kind of um, urbanologist, but I think it's to do with the tension in the city, which is that... Um, on the one hand, it has been those things that, that you say, that it's forward-looking, it's the city of the future, it's founded on the idea that you come here and you can recreate yourself in this place of endless possibility, which is partly true and partly kind of bullshit. And <laughs> even Scott Fitzgerald in the 20s read all those stories that were sort of, even those very early stories um, that were sort of, about the underbelly of it all and about the kind of disappointment and we see that in Nathaniel West and so on very, very early on. Um, but I think because it's just sort of, you know, that we're here sitting outside the Doheny Library, which is 
as an architectural construct is as powerful a metaphor for the way blunt capitalism operates in America as any building I know. Um, so on the one hand, LA has sprung up higgledy-piggledy as a result of um, just Dar Darwinian economics. Mm. And I think it's always been resistant to the idea of this is a city that should kind of plan itself. And um, I think there have been two or three moments when something happened where the freeway system, uh, and this was kind of Raina Banham's thing, that obviously that was planned and plotted and created the post-World War II identity of L.A., Really, there was a great resistance to any further plotted urban change. And um, we know, we all know the story of the kind of the tearing up of the red car line at the kind of behest of the Goodyear tie company in the late 40s. And that's one example of the way growth in LA happens. It's just response to blunt capitalism. And then the freeway system was a response to some kind of urban planning, what we're seeing now with just through necessity, through the city is just bursting apart at the seams and therefore we have to have better public transport and this has to be planned by someone. So reluctantly, just through necessity, um, it's been embraced. Anybody reading your books will get a sense of your interest in the history of Los Angeles and your interest in crime, or more broadly speaking, wrongdoing, um, shall we say. And it seems like, you know, think of some movies, uh, like perfect examples, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit takes the red car story you mentioned and mythologizes it and makes ads wrongdoing, and uh, Chinatown adds wrongdoing to the water issues. Why... Tell me what it is, whether you or anybody else are writing about these subjects. Why do people want so badly to be told that Los Angeles is, is built on wrongdoing? Is it just the sort of American Indian burial ground thing we all want to hear? Everything was, was ill-created? Or what is that impulse that, that, that is satisfied by these movies and these books? Is it Auden in that essay he wrote um, about the mystery story... Um, in the 40s, early 50s, um, where he writes glowingly about Chandler. And um, Auden then describes Chandler as writing about the great wrong place and that we... Part of the metaphor for L.A. has been this idea that it is the great wrong place when you talk about but then its foundation stories are indeed very dark it's not that the um, Chinatown the movie did not invent the theft of the water from the Owens River Valley that happened Chinatown placed it in a different era um, and placed it within what was already obviously a mythology that we associated with LA, namely the, the private eye nut story of the 1930s. There are these foundation stories, historical moments in LA which actually are corrupt and um, that the city comes out of this. So Bright and Guilty Place starts with... Um, the breaking of the dam that Mulholland built, uh, the St. Francis Dam at the head of the San, San Francisco Canyon um, in Santa Barbara, in Ventura County. That dam breaks because he hasn't built it well enough. It runs down to the sea, killing however many people we don't know, and nobody ever really found out or completely bothered to count because a lot of them were illegal immigrant farm workers who were just kind of camped out in the valleys beneath the dam. So that creates chaos and we see it as the city needing to kind of grow out of the mulch of corrupt destruction that 
that dam burst in some way represented um, and the fact that water is stolen the fact that the dam breaks um, another of Mulholland's projects that the very fertilization of the soil that allows LA to grow is in some way kind of founded in this whether you call them crimes or not you know borderline crime certainly corrupt civic dealing kind of things and this library um, oil found in LA in 1892 by Doheny, Edward L. Doheny and his partner Canfield. Doheny makes a lot of money out of oil, loses it at first to a superior, even more ruthless capitalist, Collis Huntington, who was the uh, eminence grease of the Southern Pacific Railroad. And But Doheny realizes that he can make a lot of money through oil, makes a vast fortune through oil, but specifically through controlling oil production in Mexico, um, between sort of 1900 and 1920, effectively, um, surviving revolutions, having a kind of private army around um, the town of Tampico, where his oil fields are, which are at that time the richest fields in the world. All this has got the kind of background of B. Traven's novels, Treasure in the Sierra Madre and so on, which actually kind of starts in Tampico. Uh, these American guys were working in the Doheny fields down there. Um, and L.A. is through the 10s and 20s and 30s of the last century is an oil town. You look at those amazing pictures of the fields of derricks around Signal Hill. Um, Doheny, as we know, um, becomes involved or is not involved in is behind the Teapot Dome scandal when he sends his son, Edward L. Doheny Jr., um, in 1921 with the son's chauffeur Hugh Plunkett with $125,000 $1921 and a brown leather satchel to Doheny's old pal Albert Fall, the Secretary of the Interior in exchange for the two oil leases Elk Hills, California and Teapot Dome Scandal rumbles on throughout the 1920s, leads to the fall of Warren Harding, court cases to and fro, to and fro. They never quite nailed Doheny. Everybody else kind of goes down. Um, Doheny and Doheny Jr. and the son Plunkett are both found shot in the head. Greystone Mansion, February 1929. Um, no one knows quite who shoots who, but Plunkett had been due to testify at one of the ongoing federal trials. Doheny, who has been responsible for the growth of USC, has kind of funded USC, has helped recruit Rufus von Kleinschmidt, who was the first great president of USC, who really kind of caused the, became, I think, president in the early 20s, was president for nearly 20 years and caused this great university to kind of grow. So the Doheny Library happens because Doheny says to von Kleinschmidt, I need you as a, a character witness at the latest federal trial. Uh, von Kleinschmidt goes there to Washington and testifies to what a splendid, upstanding fellow Edward L. Doheny is. Uh, Doheny's not convicted. Um, Doheny gives von Kleinschmidt $1.1 million to build the Doheny Library in memory of the dead son. Um, so in a way, you know, you could argue that this library was in effect a bribe. Um, and it's hard not to listen to that narrative and think that embodies and enforces a dark vision of, of the way this city grew. And... Um, of course, you know, the, the, the nature of the question you asked is very interesting, that, well, why do we wish to perceive um, Los Angeles as this kind of dark place? And uh, my accountant recently read 
Brian Guilty Place, and he said, oh, but it's so dark, and, and um, he said, I love, you know, I'm like Randy Newman, I love L.A., but then if you listen to that Randy Newman song, that in itself is a very, you know, look at that bum over there, he's down on his knees, um, it's sort of, I would say, I suppose, that we perceive, we wish to perceive L.A. in this way, um, because it still is this way and um, so when Kerry McWilliams wrote in the late 30s about the kind of great slew of, of sensational crimes that had happened in LA around that time a couple of which I use in Bright and Guilty Place these true non-fiction stories of huge celebrity trials that Kerry McWilliams said well LA has the best murders anywhere and still to some extent that that's true you know that that um, Phil Spector's defense his defense is that he couldn't have killed her because he left the gun on the table in the restaurant and when she was being killed he was on his way back to pick it up I mean you know it's it's crazy but the the myth of LA as Auden's great wrong place um, keeps reinforcing itself then again the city is many 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 other things too and that one of Mike Davis's arguments in City of Courts which is very true which is that the the kind of looking at LA through the noir lens um, has already been a cliche for a very long time but then it's a seductive cliche which like all cliches has quite a bit of truth in it I suppose there is a way that Los Angeles remains a, a kind of a black hole of, of negative energy for the rest of the country. You know, the farther you are away from Los Angeles, the more you automatically dislike Los Angeles, whether experienced in it or not. And even here, you know, people will... It's weird to say some... It's weird for somebody to say they like it here, but it's not weird for them to act like they do, if you know what I mean. It's... it's it's a place people like more in deed than in word. In some sense, there's a resistance to liking it as you would like another place. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that um, it's... Of the cities I've lived in, um, which would be Manchester, larger cities, Manchester, um, London, New York, Helsinki, um, they're immediately legible um, because of ones you grasp them by walking around in them and um, the nature of the life that you grasp in LA has always been much less centered than that um, so that I lived in Venice for 21 years without ever realizing, gee, you know what, I kind of really like Venice and um, that it's actually sort of part of my identity. So I don't think that people, um, until recently maybe, um, when we started noticing there are so many different types of L.A., there are so many different types of Los Angeles writing and that maybe there should be... I think the idea of being proud to be an L.A. writer is something that's very new. Yeah. And um, a couple of years ago, I was at a... Um, David Ulin from the, the L.A. Times had arranged taking some L.A. writers to um, the Brooklyn Book Festival. Jonathan one of Jonathan Lethem's things and um, then the um, someone from the New York Times said to Judith Freeman, another LA writer and USC professor and myself well what are you doing here and we said well you know we're because we're part of this panel of LA writers and this reporter from the New York Times said oh how sweet oh, <laughs> oh my god it was fantastically condescending I'd rather she just said fuck you <laughs> And um, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting that there's still that degree of kind of scorn and condescension about this, where it seems 
obvious to anyone, any of us here, that um, not just LA is so many different cities, but LA is so many different types of writer now, and such a sort of vibrant literary place, really. It's a strange thing because, you know, a lot of this maybe we can chalk up to just the sheer size of the place, but you mentioned, you know, Venice and your life there, and there's people who live in Santa Monica saying, well, we'll never say they live, well, because they're living in a separate municipality, sure, but they will never associate themselves with Los Angeles. It's always Santa Monica. Same with, say, Pasadena, but these are separate cities. Some people will say, well, I live in Venice. They won't mention Los Angeles, even though it's part of Los Angeles, or, or they'll say, I live in Hollywood or... You know, what I'm getting at is it's even even in, if you take the New York equivalent, uh, somebody who lives in Hoboken is not trying to say Hoboken pride. Forget New York. That's nothing. You know, there's, there's a pretty clear difference there. I'm not sure what to chalk that up to, though. Well, I think in part it's a very... Um we need uh, DJ Waldy here to <laughs> explain to us sort of exactly how this happened. But then... That just the the civic map of Los Angeles is so strange that you have the county of LA, uh, which is the, the the big whole area. You have the city of LA, which has, if you look at the the bits of the county of LA that the city of LA represents, it's a surprising hodgepodge, and so that these separately incorporated actual cities. Um, Venice used to be its own incorporated, incorporated city, ceased to be that for a while. Culver City is still its own incorporated city. Mar Vista used to be. Santa Monica, we all know, still is. Um, that patchwork um, used to be even more of a patchwork than it still is. And so these places really did have... I think in the, if you go back to um, the turn of the last century, Santa Monica just was actually not anywhere near LA. Right, right. It really was. You know, you take you take a vacation there, using the red car or what have you, and you'd be there for a week. You wouldn't be. I need to be there in twenty minutes. That's my God-given right to be there in twenty minutes from Pasadena. Yeah, you go down there and and. At best, um, at shortest, spend a day, or as you kind of say, you know, spend more time down there. But it was it was an actual journey of, of 15, 20, 30 miles, depending on where you would come from, to get down there. And um, again, as we were saying before, it's then the, the, the car that starts to bind these different municipalities together through the 1920s and 1930s and then this kind of amorphous octopus of a, an urban environment that we call LA started to identify itself as LA and now we have um, the irony as we were saying that it's kind of um, the octopus has started retreating back towards its own original point of explosion namely downtown um, so I think if we look into the kind of history of the way the city came to be um, you find reasons for again that sort of that geographic almost kind of apartheid um, the other thing that's interesting about LA is that it's it's sort of um, its history is so new that these delineations can be identified quite clearly and also that we didn't really start paying we as kind of people who are interested in the history of, of this place didn't really start paying any attention to much of that until I guess you know 25 years ago I would see as the, the beginning of um, I mean one thinks of City of Quartz Mike Davis's great book as being a um, not just a great book but an important historical moment in the way the city achieves a different kind of self-consciousness but yeah we're going to look at the history of all of this because it does have that history and it's kind of fascinating and um, 
so rich and that I have huge numbers of books of the history of LA and um, if you look at the way the city is written about um, you get the early books from the 30s the Carey McWilliams um, Southern California Country Island on the Land um, the Morrow Mayo book Los Angeles which I like which kind of got kicked out the door really by Carey McWilliams book which is better but the Morrow book has these great retellings of the the story, the, the water war story, for instance, and um, their anti-booster books, their polemical left-wing, the non-fiction reinforcement of the kind of noir idea that this is the kind of great dark place. The other kind of book were these blatant booster books yes. that picture books, some of them extremely well written some of them written by very very good journalists um, saying well you know here is this wonderful new big city that is still growing where you can come and do this and come and do that and one sees those sorts of that dichotomy in the kind of book that's written about LA really continues um, up until the 80s when people then start trying to kind of embrace Okay, what what does the fact that there are these very different perceptions of the history of this city tell us about not just the city but the way the city has been written about and why it's been written about? Um, so that the LA Times itself, in its early um, Harry Chandler days, was very associated with boosting um, some of the land schemes that were built on the back of the water uh, theft from the Owens River Valley, for instance. The LA Times family were closely involved in that, in bringing the water from the Owens River Valley because they were going to make a ton of money when the land was uh, irrigated in the San Fernando Valley, which they conveniently bought. And so, of course, the LA Times was busy boosting these projects as they were happening. Um, the city has always been kind of has happened in this way but it's also always been written about in this kind of polemical way um, whether one is taking the booster view or the anti-booster view and it's only within the last 20 years or so as the city itself the basin filled up and the city rolled on into another version of itself um, that writers began to kind of look back and think, well, okay, um, in some, how do we put our arms around the whole history of LA? And it seems kind of possible to do that in a way that it isn't possible to do it with London, say, because you're talking about such a long history and so many more accreted layers of architecture and history and um, whereas in LA even though the place is constantly morphing and changing we still see you look around and you see the evidence of its own all the lineage of its history all over the place about a year ago I was interviewing uh, your countrywoman Frances Anderton, who does the design and architecture show on KCRW, and she described coming from a village, growing up in a village in England, one with all these laws about the color your door has to be because the village is very old. Uh, coming to Los Angeles, she said she was freed of the crushing burden of history. And I wonder, given that you have such an interest in history, it, was history initially something that you felt you could be freed from here or is it is it two different things the history you're interested in and the kind that maybe binds you down in a country like england yeah i mean that's a i've asked myself well why it is that you know that i um i read a book that uh, i never quite finished and never got published which was about a man going to a place um and losing his memory and um this was a novel I wrote between books two and three that I actually did publish. 
And I set this book in this town where um, I spent time as a kid, Flandidno in North Wales, an Edwardian seaside resort. Um, the setting, or one of the settings for Al Arnold Bennett's great novel, The Card. Um, and I talked to this, I talked about this subject with my students that you really, if you know what you're trying to do in a book, you're more likely to have a successful end, re end result than if you don't know what it is that you're trying to do. Um, that what is your book about? Try and tell me that in one or two lines. Um, just what does, it, what does the fact that you're working on this mean to you? And with this Plandino memory loss novel, I never figured out what it meant to me. Until years later, a friend said to me, oh, if you were to kind of like stick that in your computer, um, word substitutes, Flan didn't know, for Venice, California, <laughs> this, not, this failed novel of yours would make more sense that Venice, that California is the place you came to kind of erase your English memory um, goodbye to all that and all that and I thought it's like more, more than one Englishman has done that on the coast of Los Angeles correct me if I'm wrong but I've met a few yeah absolutely and in my own career what's kind of curious then is that I having kind of eschewed all my own English history uh, I then became obsessed by LA history <laughs> At least you chose it, though. It's not like if you're being born into it. It's like someone born in Los Angeles is often not very interested in Los Angeles and has that combination of, like, doesn't really like it but what won't go anywhere else. That, that whole psychodrama. Maybe England has the same thing. It's, uh, you've got plenty of, uh, plenty of people back home, you know, I'm, uh, I'm sure, who, who uh, have the same psychodrama around where they live, be it England, be it here, be it wherever. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's odd to me that... Um I grew up in, in Bradford in the north of England, which is a city that has a very um, extraordinary history of um, great industrial city in the mid-1800s, uh, the nearest place in England that actually came to having a revolution in 1848 because the, the working conditions in the woolen mills were so appalling and it was a place where um, wool barons engaged in competitive fugues of mill and mansion building. And then T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland has a line, the silk hat of a Bradford millionaire. And uh, at one moment, it kind of had more millionaires per capita than anywhere in Europe. And yet it's a small, grimy, filthy kind of shithole of a city essentially or well, that was the city I grew up in when the, the woolen industry had been completely coshed and then the other thing that was apparent when I was a kid was that well every shop on um, the corner um, was owned by a Pakistani and because in the 50s and early 60s um, the Brits were encouraging various ethnic groups from around what had been the empire to come and do the jobs that English people weren't prepared to do and Bradford then became um, the centre of um, the largest Muslim population of any city in the west um, so Bradford was 20% Muslim and that was just part of its identity and no one really paid any attention to that until lo and behold it's in Bradford that they make a bonfire and burn Salman Rushdie's the satanic verses and um, and yet this is the place I'm from and the, the history of Bradford is kind of fascinating but it doesn't really interest me in the way that the history of LA kind of obsesses me and, and haunts me and I suppose that's to do with this thing that you say that at some point I made the decision to shrug off a part of my English identity although you never can shrug that off and instead embrace this um, faux uh, Los Angeles historical suit <laughs> 
you tell that story about Bradford, and it does, again, make me think of Los Angeles, because here we have a city that was once the least diverse metropolis in America, and it essentially suddenly became the most diverse and has had struggles with that. I mean, parts of England have had similar struggles, haven't they? Yeah, I think in sort of um, L.A. is is even more uh, ethnically diverse than than, um, Bradford was and is it's just that the, the the diversity in Bradford was and is so striking and um, that on the one hand you had this white working class then there was a lot of German immigration in Bradford and um, then the Isla- Islamic then more recently a lot of Poles um, so whereas LA is much more of a and I guess it's it's what's interesting about the recent history of the city is that um, LA has had to have its feet held to the fire to embrace its multi-ethnicity <laughs> which um, you know now it it does, and it's become a sort of another, um, on the one hand, um, a badge of pride for the city. On the other hand, this thing that's kind of a little bit inconvenient when um, you have to embrace uh, whatever it is. You know, the cab driver from Chechnya who can't speak any English or... Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a sort of... Um, but I think it's the nature of, of um, the urban experience that part of L.A.'s continued vibrancy is the fact that this economic possibility um, that it represented to America in the 20s and then again in the kind of 40s and 50s... Um, is now perceived by the rest of the world in that way. Mm. And um, then, of course, you know, you have the, the major um, thing, which has been that it's always been um, and still is a very a predominantly not quite half, but almost half Latino city. That's been the case going way back and um, so that one of my historical archivist guys um, when Doheny was up to various suppressing revolutionary shenanigans in Mexico in the 1910s uh, the FBI uh, had agents, or the BOI, as it was then called, the Bureau of Investigation, had agents posted um, on Chester Place, where Doheny's first mansion was, just up the road from here, um, because Doheny was afraid that Mexican revolutionaries were going to try and take a pop shot at him. So he had them watching the house. Um, so, but I think, again, this was curious and fascinating about the the moment where we are now in LA history is that all of this um, the multifariousness of the city is so much more spoken about analysed the discussion has become a part of what LA is and not just the reality of all of these groups but the fact that we think about well what does this tell us about the city and the way the city is changing and growing and the way different people want to use different parts of the city and so on. In some sense, the way that more people are writing about it now is it's it's almost an incentive to write more about Los Angeles, to pile onto that. It's not like it's people are seizing the existing opportunities. It's, it seems to create more... Uh, it's, it's, it's a feedback loop of interest these days, is how it looks to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting watching the the students here um, you know that you 
the gay Korean LA novel, for instance, you know, is a new thing, but there it is. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it yet to be published? Is there such a novel written? There's such a novel written, but yet to be published. One of the students here has um, you know, something like that, and it's great. And uh, so, but then we're, you know, you're looking at kind of different. Writers write what they can. Uh, part of writing what they can means writing what they know, and then what the young writer knows about LA now is inevitably very different to what I thought I knew about LA as a young writer when I was here in the the mid 1980s. Do you get a sense that anybody's getting the same? type of excitement you did when they come here in the 21st century as you did in the early 80s? Oh, I'm sure. Because I think that that's the sort of um, the nature of that. Um, you know, my own view of the place has kind of cycled through various uh, dustbins of jaded cynicism the longer, <laughs> the longer I spent here. But for the person who arrives here for the first time, you know, that palm tree is always going to look like it's got a weird hairdo. <laughs> and then you notice that the kind of scuffling in the palm trees is not actually the wind, but might indeed be rats. Um, so these things are sort of, um, I think, part of the... Part of the reason why, as a writer, you seek out... Anybody seeks out different cities or uh, different environments is just that they force themselves on you with that intimacy that actually um, makes you want to kind of seize that image. I think it's one of the very primary fundamental things about writing that writing is a way that we can kind of not just ex try seek to explain the world to ourselves, but kind of to seek to control it. And uh, it's still fascinating to me to ride around on the bus and listen to conversations. And I still write them down. I have notebooks, scores of notebooks filled with LA dialogue that I've just heard on the bus and it's great dialogue incredible stories, extraordinary characters that you just sort of see every day in that weird theatre that every single MTA bus undoubtedly is and um, I'm never going to use all that material and actually for me it's always just been a way of oh I'm both here and I'm not here and I'm going to explain my presence on this bus by seeking to control the environment by making notes with the false pretense that I may end up actually kind of using these in some way. But of course then I did use them in that first book, which was a lot of it was just um, kind of journalism filtered through a very simple story. But I think that's always going to be um, someone... And they make, you know, I hope they're no longer a kind of white English male, although I keep seeing white English male books that think, I think, oh, that's a bit like Ella without a man. <laughs> and, um, but that way of perceiving the, the city in that fresh, someone's always going to be doing that. And, it, you know, for any city, the, the young person's, um, the young man or woman going to the city has been the subject of the novel since Tom Jones through um, Balzac, through Dickens, through Dostoevsky, through Martin Amis's The Rachel Papers is a kind of classic first novel of that kind. Um, people are always going to be writing that kind of book. And finally, which, which bus lines have given you the most material? Which, which have been the note-taking richest lines to ride for you over the years? I mean, I noticed reading Los Angeles without a map again recently, a lot of those bus lines are still the same lines, though it's now the, it's no longer the RTD. It's gone, undergone some name, name changes. But which, which lines give you the material? Well, it's the, you know, the great arterial 
lines. So um, my my youngest son is actually a sort of wonderful amateur urbanologist who uh, has ridden his kind of fixed wheel bike all around the city and has taken epic bus journeys all around the city. Um, and the buses that are the best are the ones that take you the furthest. So the bus that starts right at the western end of Venice Boulevard and goes all the way down Venice Boulevard right to Union Station takes you through um, so much of the city and that if you look at the grid of the city those arterial bus lines the 33 that is the Venice Boulevard bus the number 2 that's the Santa Monica RTD MTA as it now is um, they just take you all the way across the city and therefore um, all the way through so many different types of um, the urban experience. Though, of course, even if you take the Santa Monica bus through Beverly Hills, you're not likely to get the Century City lawyer <laughs> on that bus, although maybe they do now, I don't know, but uh, I'm sure they're still in their BMWs. They're waiting for the subway station in 2026, I think. Right. <laughs> I've been speaking with Richard Rayner, author of novels like Los Angeles Without a Map, The Elephant, Murder Room, The Cloud Sketcher, and The Devil's Wind, author of non-fiction books like A Bright and Guilty Place, Drake's Fortune, The Associates, and which one am I missing of... Uh, your non-fiction books, I feel like I just didn't remember one. The Blue Suit. The Blue Suit. Of course, but that's, there's, there's a bit of a, like Los Angeles, Los Angeles without a map, there's a bit of a, well, this is stylized as well as true, and I dare you to find which is which, reader, right? Yeah, although the, people always say to me about The Blue Suit, which uh, was the book that I wrote, it was actually the first book I wrote after we came here uh, permanently, and I wrote it after my father died. And um, people say to me, well, how much of that, that book is really true? And I say, well, actually, only the really worst bits of it <laughs> in terms of my own personal behavior. So the story of that is that, you know, my, my one-line story of my childhood is that when I was um, 9, 10, uh, my father faked his own death and disappeared, having embezzled a very large amount of money. Um, didn't reappear until I was at Cambridge and his own mother had died um, so he'd been away in South America and South Africa spending this money which vanished quite quickly then he came back was sent to jail I saw him a couple of times at which point my own life went off the rails and I started doing silly things like credit card fraud, kiting checks, breaking into houses, and um, it didn't occur to me until way later, 15 years down the line, would it have been 15 years? Yeah, probably 12, 13 years down the line when we moved here and my father died that, oh, that was actually kind of weird and interesting, the fact that dad did this, came back, and I started doing that. So I wrote The Blue Suit from the perspective of being in L.A. in my 30s, remembering these two periods of my life in England, one when I was at university and two uh, when, as a, as a kid growing up in Bradford. And... Um, it was a memoir that I wouldn't have been able to write had I not been here. And I have it kind of bookended with a moment which was true, that when we were driving around during the riots and uh, I was watching some looting going on and we saw this kind of quite middle-class couple. This was towards the end of day two when the city was just... It was anarchy. And I loved it. I thought this was great. Um, we saw the city coming out, this middle-class couple uh, coming out of a 7-Eleven, which was being looted, loaded with pampers. And these were just this white couple who were joining in the looting of this store. And I said, 
I said to my wife, how could they be doing that? And my wife said to me, yeah, Richard, but, you know, what if that store had been filled with Nabokov first editions? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then, yeah, that was the moment that kind of spurred the crystallized, yeah, that's actually sort of what is it about how do we... So in a way, the blue suit is a kind of consideration of my own biographical amorality, um, which was prompted by this moment of anarchy in, in L.A.'s history. Even when they're not Los Angeles books, they are in some <laughs> sense Los Angeles books. Richard, thanks so much. Thanks a lot. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Find more from me at colinmarshall.org and more from the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.